Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. To hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, a hard fight comes to an end. Elizabeth Warren drops out of the race for a Democratic presidential nominee and a look at her exit and the rest of the Super Tuesday aftershocks. With the world and nation in a frenzy, what could be the political symptoms of COVID-19? And a new poll confirms a tight race ahead for Senator Ed Markey and his challenger, Congressman Joe Kennedy. It's a full hour of insight and analysis from the Mass Politics Profs. But first, joining me in the studio, Aaron O'Brien, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Hello, Aaron. Hello, hello. And Rob DeLeo, Associate Professor of Political Science at Bitley University. Hello, Rob. Thanks for having me. And Peter Ubertaccio, Founding Dean of the Thomas and Donna May School of Arts and Sciences and Associate Professor of Political Science at Stonehill College. Hello, Peter. Hi, Callie. All three are contributors to the Mass Politics Profs blog. So let me confess, when we booked this session with you, we thought (laughs) this would be kind of early. I I hope we'd have something to say. Oh, well. (laughs) (laughs) Plenty to say. (laughs) Yes. Well, let's just dive right in with uh, Elizabeth Warren's withdrawal from the race. This is just a bit from what she said yesterday when she decided to bow out. This is Elizabeth Warren speaking to the press after announcing she would exit the race for Democratic presidential nominee. I will not be running for president in 2020, but I guarantee I will stay in the fight for the hardworking folks across this country who've gotten the short end of the stick over and over. That's been the fight of my life, and it will continue to be so. All right. So, shocked? Any of you surprised? Uh, shouldn't be shocked. Um, this one hurt. I, I know I'm supposed to try to be analytic. Um, and you know, this happened on Thursday at like 1245 and I was teaching women politics and policy at oh. two. Mm. And I thought, oh God, do I have to be the adult in the room? <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I did. I did my best, but I mean, I, I'm a political scientist. I'm a social scientist. We all are. I believe in data. I adore Elizabeth Warren. Uh, I've never voted for someone that I was like, I like all of it. Mm. So, uh, you know, as a professor, I, I have other thoughts. But personally, I was like, gosh, this person to me, and I know I, I'm increasingly alone on this, was an ideal candidate. And it to see the way in which her numbers moved in Massachusetts, you know, the base of the Democratic Party is female and disproportionately of color. And those are the voters who left her. Mm. Those are the voters who going in, it was, you know, within two points with Bernie Sanders, and they made a calculus that she was unelectable. The fact that Democratic voters are making that calculus on such a qualified candidate, you know, I've seen this movie before. I know how it ends. So it's sort of ridiculous that I was hoping for a different ending, but I really was. Mm. Um, The way in which 
which she, her campaign did everything that you're supposed to do on paper correctly. And it wasn't enough. It was for a little bit, but it just shows me that a woman, a person of color, especially a female of color, can get in now, and that's mm-hmm. improvement. But you, gosh, you better run a perfect race because um, you're not shown the grace uh, of a mistake that a white male is. I mean, love him or hate him, Biden is going to Biden moving forward. You know, mm. three, four, five days ago, whatever it was, he said he was, what, what is arrested with Mandela or yeah. arrested? <laughs> I mean, like, false. Uh, empirically, we can prove this is false. And th- he's still perceived as the guy who's most electable. Yeah. All right, Peter. I'm not surprised. You know, I think that if you just looked at the polling over the course of the past eight years, there have been moments when she's she's risen to the top. But I feel a little bit differently about it than Aaron, though I, I know that she is correct uh, to point out that women candidates face a much higher bar. And so she's exactly right. They can't afford to have a gaffe. Uh, they can't afford uh, mistakes because voters judge them differently. With Warren, however, I do think that there are things that even a perfectly run campaign couldn't overcome. And I think Democratic voters were leery about the way that she handled the issue of her own heritage. And uh, that was very early in the campaign, but I think that it left a lasting impression. I think Warren was not able effectively, and, you know, again, hindsight is perfect here. Uh, I don't know how she could have done a better job, but I I think that, that... Uh, She was never really effectively able to sell herself as Elizabeth Warren from Oklahoma and how she moved from difficult circumstances in Oklahoma to being a Harvard Law uh, professor and and a candidate for president. uh, That narrative never really took off. And what surprised me the most was the the speed with which voters uh, moved away from her. Uh, over the course of the past week or so, you know, you I, I assumed as one of the top three candidates left, really, that she would have done better. But in places like Oklahoma, where she's got native roots, uh, but here in Massachusetts to come in third uh, in your own state is is shocking to me. You know, you can run a perfect campaign. You can have a great team, and she had a great team, and you can have a good message, and it cannot be your year for a whole host of complicated reasons. I still expected her to do better on Super Tuesday than she did. Okay. I'm going to couch the same question to you, Rob, in a little bit different way because you're the policy guy, and she was the policy candidate. If nothing else got through to people who even barely knew her name, they knew she had plans and policies. Over and over, these people said— and the exit polls proved this on Super Tuesday, that our top issues are uh, health care and climate change, both of which she was pretty big on. And yet. And yet, I don't think this is an election cycle where policy is what's driving voter behavior. I think if Super Tuesday told us anything, this is an anger election. This is an election where voters are mobilized to remove Donald Trump from office. If policy was driving voter behavior, Joe Biden wouldn't be the front runner right now. Um, he's effectively failed to articulate a coherent agenda. His uh, his response has been, "Don't vote for Bernie, and I'll win this election for you." And, and so I know for, Barack Obama, right? And yeah. and, and, and so yeah. from a, a, a policy standpoint, <laughs> you know, it's it's he's really hasn't differentiated himself in any meaningful way. So yeah, as a policy scholar, that's that's disappointing. One thing I would I would also add, my regret is that maybe Elizabeth Warren didn't actually get out sooner because 
the race clearly narrowed Mm. much more than we appreciated after South Carolina. And had Elizabeth Warren got out after South Carolina, she may have been able to save some face a la Amy Klobuchar. Uh, in Minnesota, because I, I would agree with Peter. I think that the the results of Massachusetts were demoralizing. But well, you know, so, on February mm-hmm. 29th, it was 24-22, mm-hmm. right? Like uh, well within the margin of error. Biden was, I think, in fourth or fifth in that polling. There was no indicator to get out, right? Like, yeah, I mean, yes, you wanted to win some other states as well. Like it was downward mm-hmm. momentum. I definitely agree with that. But there, the, it wasn't. There was no writing on the wall that it was going to be that bad. Voters switched, and to Rob's point, they switched to Joe Biden, Mm -hmm. who has been rather inept on policy. And these very same voters literally flirted with every other candidate. He's the boyfriend you come back to when you shouldn't. Mm -hmm. You know better in Mm -hmm. some ways. And so the the rapid—to Peter's point, the way in which that happens so quickly— requires, it's one thing, it's not all gender at all here, but the way in which the bottom fell out because voters made a calculus that problematic Joe Biden was infinitely more electable than the woman with a plan, that's what I find most disheartening about all of it. So let me just pick up on this fast, fast movement because uh, you know, even people like yourselves had to be surprised by all the endorsements, dropouts right after uh, South Carolina and, you know, certainly barreling into Super Tuesday. That was just shocking. You know, nobody was expecting that. It feels to me, and other people have said this, but I'm not the political person, that this was a forced narrowing fast, fast, fast. Like, you know, if you think about it, prior to Super Tuesday, there were only four states, what, three states that had people had voted. What the heck? You know, <laughs> you know, nobody had a chance to do anything. And then all of a sudden it's over. That feels to me just to be wrong on so many levels. <laughs> uh, it may well be, uh, which we're going to soon find out. I think that uh, for some of the candidates who, who dropped out, it, it became very clear that there was not a path uh, to the nomination. But why Peter did? I was actually <clears throat> surprised that he he dropped out soon. He came, had strong followings and, you know, he could have kept going for a what while. What Iowa? Uh, yeah. yeah. Well, it turns out, you know, I think I think the, the folks who should be scared the most these days are the folks in Iowa mm-hmm. uh, and New Hampshire. It's <laughs> yeah. a non-representative yeah. uh, primary and caucus states that, that clearly might not have a handle <laughs> on what primary electors around the country uh, want. To go back to, uh, the, maybe I'm, I'm a little bit less critical of Biden in, in this sense. V- voters do respond to cues, and uh, it makes a pretty big difference that Joe Biden was Barack Obama's vice president for eight years, and they know him. He, he's like your corner diner. You, you don't go there for a decent menu. You, you don't go there to get it, to, to, to see what all the ingredients are. You are not doing his ad copy. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not. You, you go there for something comfortable. So I don't think that, that someone like Joe Biden who was unknown to Democratic primary voters would be doing as well as as two-term Vice President Joe Biden, who is very well known to Democratic primary mm-hmm. voters, and uh, and they have a certain comfort level with him. I, I still am surprised, as I said earlier, the degree not only of the, the, the people dropping out, but his margins. 
yeah. in Virginia and in North Carolina. With no field office. That's right. It's, it's, and again, I don't think anyone else could have done that except for a person who was really well known among those those voters. And so that that surprises me quite a bit, you know, that that Warren, who ran a strong nationwide campaign, ended up not qualifying in, in some states and that Biden completely overwhelmed uh, the other candidates in not only South Carolina, but then North Carolina and Virginia. You know, and I, I think that there's also if you're Buttigieg and you you clearly are not resonating among mm. voters of color, are you really going to stake a claim to the nomination at that point? That's very problematic uh, for the candidates who were left in the race to see what those margins were like among communities of color for Joe Biden. In his case, at least, he's quite young and you, you've, he's got a long career ahead of him. And I think in some of these other cases, you know, Warren Warren holds a lot of cards now as someone whose endorsement will be coveted, but also as someone who, if she chooses to be, and the Democrats win in the fall, can be a great supporter of the next Democratic president, can be a thorn in the side of the next Democratic president. She's very clearly a policy person. And so I think her ultimate goals, we, we, I assume all politicians want to be president. I assume that is as strong with <laughs> Elizabeth Warren as anyone else. But she's got very clearly defined policy agenda that I think she'd like to help move through Washington, D.C. in 2021. All right. So that brings me to the endorsement uh, question, because we've talked, all of us, many times, eh, endorsements may matter, may not matter. You know, James Clyburn yep. is Joe Biden should be at his house every weekend. I mean, <laughs> for goodness sake. That was the quite French the, restaurant, the yeah. fancy. <laughs> that was the endorsement I have never, I mean, that man brought it uh, in that endorsement. Um, and I think he reminded, because, you know, what we haven't said out here explicitly is that a lot of that ride for Joe Biden through the southern states was on the backs of African-American voters who made a choice at the end. Not all of them. I'd like to point out there's many of them in other campaigns, including James Clyburn's grandson was for Buttigieg. But the point is that they felt that comfort level, I think, for reasons that um, Maura Gay, who's on the uh, New York Times uh, opinion board, wrote a piece about having traveled recently down for the Selma 55th anniversary. And, you know, you're in the space where you feel what happened those 55 years ago and the resonance of it. And people see that in Trump and they're like, "Uh -uh, uh uh-uh, uh-uh, get away from me. I need somebody I can be sure of on this one issue, at least, is going to go forward on my behalf. And so when James Clyburn says... More importantly, Joe knows us. I thought, okay, well, that's it. You know, that was pretty powerful. And I think, you know, these endorsements or some endorsements really do matter. And in his case, it mattered a huge amount. Yeah. And I, I would I would say he, he effectively resuscitated Joe Biden's <laughs> campaign. I yeah. mean, that's not I mean that the the impact of that endorsement was it immeasurable, more so than I think an endorsement would typically count. Um, so if you, take, if you pick up what Peter said about voters like Qs, then that's the mm -hmm. cue to I mean, African-American voters. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. And, I, yeah. and I think the, you know, the mm -hmm. Beto O'Rourke endorsement in Texas helped there. And I don't think Amy Klobuchar in Minnesota hurt either. So I, I definitely think this is an election where endorsements help. But again, what's interesting about this particular election in Super Tuesday more specifically is that Biden also performed well in states where really these endorsements shouldn't have mattered all that much. Maine, 
um, Massachusetts, places where he had really no field operation at all. So I think they definitely resuscitated his campaign. But to chalk up all of his success to, to these endorsements um, doesn't do justice I, to his success. I think that's right. And I would yeah. say one thing. Um, I think that was the last minute people. There were yeah. so many going into the polls. But there were so people. many last minute people because it's, uh, you know, you have a son to talk political science. All the rules we normally say, yeah. endorsements don't matter. Not yeah. this time. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. like, like, like um, Spending. You know, caveat, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, and, and so the voter, Democratic voters are operating in a context of fear. Yes. And I, I, they're not operating from heart. Every voter, it seems to me, has become a strategic voter. Who can beat Trump? Who can beat Trump? The problem is no one's sure. So in that context of fear, I'm going to go with whoever can beat them when these cues come in. Mm-hmm. I mean, and the, the perfect test is uh, Massachusetts, a Maine, of Virginia, where Biden had no offices or he had one or mm-hmm. two. He didn't have a ground game. No doors were knocked. And for that reversal to happen so quickly... Mm-hmm says to me, you know, Clyburn was the first signal. And then when everyone fell in line, they fell in line because we've been dying to fall in line mm-hmm. amongst Democrats. Mm-hmm. Just unsure where, because everybody was making a different calculus. I can't mm-hmm. tell you how many people, I mean, this is anecdotal, but are talking to me. I'm going to, I want to vote this person, but I'm going to vote Y yeah. to block X. And I was like, it's a primary. Just vote mm-hmm. for whoever you like the most. That's the way this is supposed to go. So I just think the context of 2020 right. is so different than 2016. No one wants to take a risk right now. Okay. Uh, if you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. Here with me are three of the mass politics profs, Aaron O'Brien of UMass Boston, Rob DeLeo of Bentley University, and Peter Ubitaccio of Stonehill College. We're discussing the aftermath of Super Tuesday and other local and national political stories you need to know. Just one other thing related to this, and then I want to move on, and that is the break with, uh, it seems, with Latinx uh, voters for Bernie and we've discussed the African-American vote older, mostly, for Biden. So here's a cut from—this is a 18-year-old Hugo Marces tells KPX, KPIX CBS San Francisco in the Bay Area why young Latinos in California showed up for Bernie on Super Tuesday. The reason why that Bernie Sanders attracts us is that he understands our needs, Medicare for all, immigration, and uh, racial justice. So I wondered, is this an age thing, really, or is it a race thing? And if so, what was interesting to me, because there's, I would have expected more of an overlap, that would also say to me, I have no data, you are the data people, (laughs) that young African-Americans, and I've certainly heard this anecdotally, are not on the Biden team. So they're going somewhere, and most of them are going toward burning. Peter? I think it's going to be a fascinating development. I suspect you're going to hear a lot more about the Obama administration's record on deportations mm-hmm. uh, now that we're down to a two-person race. I'm not sure how that will. I don't think it will rebound helpfully to, to Joe Biden to have to defend a, a record that um, really is an affront to a lot of folks in the Latinx community. And so that really has not been much of an issue. Bernie Sanders has been able to tap into some of that already, but in such a crowded field, it never got the the play that I that I would have expected, in part because I think Barack Obama is still held in very high regard by uh, a lot of Democratic primary voters. But you're going you're gonna to hear a lot 
more of this as we get down into the kind of this crucial two-person race for delegates? I do think it's partly generational, um, but I also think it's regional. When we look at um, Mm -hmm. Latinx, uh, in California, very strong for Bernie. In Texas, it looks like Biden did pretty well with the uh, Latinx community. In Florida, Bernie is not going to do well uh, amongst Cuban population. So, you know, way (laughs) too often. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Right. A big, big, bold prediction (laughs) on my part. Um, uh, But, you know, oftentimes voters of color, African-Americans and Latinx are performing different. Latinx are performing different by region. And a lot of that regional overlay is whether you're, you know, heritage is from Mexico or heritage from Cuba. So, you know, intersectionality is one of these phrases everybody uses and they don't really understand. Right. But on this, when we look into those breakdowns, the way in which identity is formed by, you know, country of heritage, where you live in the United States in age, makes those two by two tables really wanting. Okay, that's a good that that is an excellent point. I have to move on. I had one other fun thing I wanted to do, but I don't think I have time. (laughs) All right. Well, well, here's a fun kind of thing. Just to show that black people are not monolithic in their support. There is a huge fight that that ended up in legal ramifications in the group Public Enemy. <laughs> Let's play Public Enemy's 1988 track, Fight the Power. <laughs> Okay, you may be wondering why we played that. That is because Chuck D., the founder of Public Enemy, and one of the members most well-known, Flavor Flav, had a big falling <laughs> out. Flavor Flav. <laughs> had a huge falling out because Chuck D. agreed to a free rally for Bernie Sanders in L.A. And Flavor Flav said, I did not say I am supporting Bernie Sanders. Do not put my name uh-huh. on this rally. They went to legal—it went to, ended up in, with legal ramifications, and Chuck D. Booted out Flavor Flav from the group. But uh, anyway, there's a poster of Bernie Sanders with his arm up and fight the power on it. I just needed to play that to let you know that not all African Americans are lining up behind Biden, moving from the ridiculous to some level um, to something that is quite serious. And that is uh, COVID 19 and the political aftershocks of that. Um, Rob, you've been looking at what you think is going to, um, the ways in which this is going to have a political impact. Yeah, I mean, I've been studying pandemic politics for over a decade now, and I can tell you um, that this is unequivocally the most botched management of uh, a crisis that that I've seen um, in this country. In this in, country, in, well, in this country, yeah, okay. yeah, in in this country, mm-hmm. and I think um, I think politically, the president made a critical misstep in the early stages of this outbreak by equating uh, the coronavirus outbreak with the economy. Mm. And I think that there's no question pandemics can have significant economic ripple effects. Um, But he effectively pointed this out for the media and for the public. So if we slip into a recession because Mm. of this, voters and politicians, the Democrats are already doing this. Um, CNN has been running a Dow Jones ticker at the bottom of the screen uh, that sort of uh, aligns with the number of cases that we're seeing. Um, This could have real 
negative adverse implications on his reelection prospects, assuming, you know, coronavirus is still around by then. I also think, and maybe I'm wrong, that this raises the importance of being able to trust your chief person to tell you what is going on, because so far we've had at least three incidents, not so much with Mike Pence after he announced him as the sort of coordinator of all of this, but the president has said the exact opposite of what the health experts are saying. And that's just not, that is not very upsetting as just, you know, whether I like him or not as president, that's, I want you to tell me the truth about something like this, Peter. No, I think that that's I think that's right. I mean, Donald Trump has really never had the trust of the majority of the American people. Uh, this is uh, another manifestation, I think, of the danger of having a president who only plays to his base. Uh, he's he's never been interested in broadening uh, his appeal, uh, and and I think he views that as simply stylistic. But it's 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 more than that. There are these moments. This is one of them when you need to be able to speak to the American people openly and honestly about about what we're going through. And he can't do that. He doesn't have the moral authority to do that. He's not interested in doing that. We know that he is uh, fine with making things up. Um, and and this is not the moment uh, to be doing that because lives are at, at stake. And so this is, a, I think, to, to, to Rob's point, not only is the, the handling of this botched, uh, but the president himself simply doesn't have the authority to be able to speak uh, from a position of trust to the American people or the people around the world. Well, this is President Trump uh, urging the media and other politicians to avoid inciting panic over COVID-19. We would respectfully ask the media and politicians and everybody else involved not do anything to incite a panic because there's no reason to panic at all. Uh, this is something that is being handled professionally. Aaron. Well, I just canceled the trip to Spain mm. and I didn't want to. I'm very sad about it. Mm. And I'm not particularly worried about getting the virus. But in part, the calculus I made is what I think a lot of Americans are doing. I go to the CDC, our flight, our return flights were canceled, and I don't trust the information. I, I don't trust that Donald Trump's more worried about my safety and getting back than the economic fallout of telling me flights are going to be canceled more. Mm -hmm. So, like, I'm making a calculus, a decision with what I felt like was imperfect mm -hmm. information. Um, I, I trust the people who work at the CDC uh, uh, infinitely. But when communications have to go through the White House and when this White House, to Peter's point, has shown itself to be so concerned about the base and to Rob's point, uh, to uh, link this with the economy, that's sad, like mm -hmm. for lack of a better. Mm -hmm. For most of us, I think the only fear comes from, am I getting accurate information? We can all make smart decisions if we get good information. And if you don't trust that, then you're operating in a bit of a vacuum. And that's scary. It really is scary. All right, I'm going to do a hard turn to politics here locally. The last poll, I mean, and if this thing feels like for a long time ago, but it actually wasn't, um, uh, looking at the race between um, Senator Markey and Congressman Joe Kennedy shows that Congressman Joe Kennedy has ticked up. It's still very tight, uh, but it's ticked up. Well, what's your assessment on where this is going? And some people were not as enamored of uh, 
Joe Kennedy's response about why he wants the job after the first debate, which, we, by the way, we had yep. here at WGBH. Because his response was terrible. Yeah. I don't have one. Uh, you can't in politics get out there and say, you want to know why? Because I'm ambitious and I see Maura Healy, Ayanna Presley, you know, Seth Moulton. I see a, a bench of really amazing talent who might also want a Senate position. Ed Markey's an easier mark. Pardon the. Uh, uh, he had no answer to that. He is not better on policy. He is a young, connected white guy looking to replace an older white guy who, f by progressive standards, has a complex more on things like the environment and why amongst Democrats, most Democrats like Ed Markey and they like Joe Kennedy. Joe yeah. Kennedy is making them choose. Um, and so you better he can't make a generational argument in terms of like squad energy. You're a freaking Kennedy. Like, you know, you've had the Senate seat forever in your family. Um, so. Uh, the logic behind his or his run isn't there. It's like he's winking at voters. Like, just say it's because I'm ambitious and I want uh, I, I want it more than this guy. That Be honest with us. Uh, okay. But, you know, the Kennedy name seems to be paying off. I am struck by young people who are attuned to Democratic politics are, are in with Markey. Hmm. Interesting. Peter. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, that uh, Aaron's last point is very interesting uh, that the, the recent poll, I think it was UMass Lowell. Poll, but there was a recent poll that showed that uh, that young people are turning toward Markey. That's going to be a fascinating fault line. And to another thing that Aaron just said, um, Markey has shown that he wants it. And I think mm. that there, for for many of us who's who's followed his career, you know, uh, I, I, he has shown fight that is a bit of a surprise uh, because he hasn't had to in a very long time, right? Safely reelected to his congressional seat, elected in a special election for the first time um, that proved not to be right, you know, very difficult for him. And so uh, in the face of, of Joe Kennedy, again, a very well-regarded uh, among Democrats member of, of Congress, who clearly has a, a long future ahead of him, I, I was surprised at the degree to which Markey decided to, to fight. He's hired some very good people He's got who have a lot of expertise in a, in a strong ground game. He's doing very well among caucus goers, which is really the first step uh, in this process. And so this is going to be a fascinating uh, development in a year when there's not that much else going on in Massachusetts politics. The, pres the victor of the presidential election here is a foregone conclusion. Uh, this is going to be a riveting uh, interparty fight. And if it, it's also an interesting test case because if we consider it alongside Mayor Pete and how he polled among younger voters, which yeah. was not that great, I think this is demonstrating that the generational argument is is not hmm. going to be enough to get young people to support someone's candidacy. There needs to be something else there in order to sort of convince people um, that your age alone is an, is enough to get them to the polls for you. I would just say on the flip side, there are some suggesting, and this was uh, indicated in the Boston Globe article, that a lot of people just don't know Markey's record. Yeah. And so that does not help him. His cardinal to, sin is you know, he's boring. Right. Oh, well, no, I, I've like, been at the MLK breakfast with him. He gets a standing, sustained, but for most standing people, they ovation. Don't know, but the, the, <laughs> you know? amongst the politically attuned, like yeah. who shows yeah, okay. up to that? that so, okay. like, I think there's a total divide. People who are paying a lot of attention to Massachusetts politics like him because they know his record. But he, you know, he's a guy who, you know, worked his way up when the Senate seat up. He waited his turn. And so, you know, he's not out there bragging. He's not mm. going to be that guy. And, to be, you know, he's fighting now. But he is not known to or he's not beloved 
amongst mm. most Massachusetts Democratic voters, the way a Kennedy name is amongst the branded. attuned, uh-huh. they're like, this guy does the work. Kennedy's a name. So it's an interesting yeah, flip, if you will. Yeah. No, no brand. Not enough good branding. Right. He, yeah, like. he's yeah. yeah he's he, I mean I sort of relate to him. He's a nerd who does the work. Right? <laughs> like not sort of I do relate to him, I should say. <laughs> All right. Well, coming up there is more insight and analysis from the Mass Politics Profs. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. We're continuing our post-Super Tuesday discussion with three members of the Mass Politics Profs, Aaron O'Brien of UMass Boston, Rob DeLeo of Bentley University, and Peter Ubertaccio of Stonehill College. Let's jump right back into the conversation. So... Um, the guy that all these people are fighting, well, now just two, two white guys are fighting for <laughs> uh, for the position uh, to run against is Donald Trump. And we say that, we talked a little bit about him um, in the first half with regard to COVID-19 and some of his issues around, around trust. But in fact, to Peter's point, he has a very strong base. Um, these rallies that he's been attending have been huge. And surprising to me, some Few sprinkled people in that crowd are black people. (laughs) And he's made a concerted effort, now he and his team, to do outreach. So there is a very formal program called the Black Voices for Trump. They have recently set up in 15 community centers across the country, in case people think this is kind of a fly-by-night thing. It is not. Um, In those centers, there is MAGA merchandise, you know, Make America Great Again, T-shirts, all of that. But it's staffed by people who will be delivering the president's message and presumably the president's message with an eye toward African-American voters. At the same time, there are many gatherings around the country um, called Black Voices for Trump, where, again, his supporters are leading conversations with folks. Now, we'll note that Politico reported that at those gatherings— some cash was passed out to the people who attended. Um, this is this is reported. This is not something that's made up. And so that's a little interesting. But <laughs> I can say, having um, just uh, talked about this in a commentary um, last week, there are very much true, true believer African-American voters, nobody's being paid situation. And much has been discussed now about just closing the president's 8% uh, line that he got before, just a couple of a couple of percentage points up, would close the gap for him in many critical cities, Peter. Well, I mean, first of all, walking around money is not unheard of in American politics. got <laughs> a long and glorious tradition, <laughs> and uh, so I'm not surprised to hear it finding its way into the 2020 election. On the whole, it's, it's important and good mm-hmm. that both political parties parties make a play for all kinds of voters to increase their coalition. I think there are there there's there's been a lot of stories every election year on, you know, conservative black voters and uh, their role in the Republican Party. One reason why I mean, if he were to move, say, to 10 percent mm-hmm. of the vote there, that that would be pretty significant. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, given the state of affairs and the economy, for example, that, that I, I'm not sure it will get to 
10%, but I can imagine uh, voters giving him uh, a second look. The reason it's not likely to increase much beyond that, if it in fact it does, is because there's a big difference between trying to corral your supporters um, and listening to communities. And where the Republicans have fallen down is that they don't do a lot of listening. I mean, you remember after the 2016 mm-hmm. election, they said they were going to start, I'm sorry, after the 2012 election, That's they right. were going to start doing a lot more of that. And of course, Trump uh, uh, came in, the populace came in and, and ruined any chance that they that they had. It's really not... They, we should say they had been working toward that. The That's actual right. were, were events mm-hmm. and, and, and initiatives and all of that. That's mm-hmm. right. To really try and get mm-hmm. at the root of the problem mm-hmm. so that they're not just a white male party. Mm-hmm. You know, it's clear that they can continue to win as a party that attracts predominantly white men because of the uniqueness of our uh, of our political system, the Electoral College and the, and the Senate, right? There are pockets of power that they will continue to retain. They will never be a party that truly looks like America unless they actually start listening to those uh, communities and developing real policy responses. And so, you know, I, I think it's important that the president's team is doing that. I don't think it's going to bear a lot of fruit. Rob, um, one of the things that he's relying on to draw some people in in ways that Rob says is best um, is touting his one of his um, policies, which is the First Step Act. I mean, he's really pushing that, that, you know, we put this plan in. This has been very beneficial for African-Americans. Of course, Kim Kardashian West had to help him get there. But needless to say, (laughs) um, you know, it did help get some people who should not have been jailed out of jail. And along with a few other people that he pardoned, there were some serious people who had been in jail for many, many years and should not have been. Right. And and that policy, coupled with this outreach, I I think it's important to note that although he is certainly trying to diversify his base, he's also doing this to signal to his core supporters that, hey, look, I have these supports in other communities, despite what these Democrats are saying about me. Mm. So I think a lot of these initiatives are partially because the president loves to tweet and point to these things and highlight them in rallies um, as proof that he's really not a bad, as bad a guy as the Democrats and the mainstream media are framing him. Aaron. Oh, I wish I said what Peter said. Um, uh, yeah, no, I really just uh, concur with that. It is good when two parties go after all voters. There are a number of black voters who feel like Democrats take them for granted. And I think they're right. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, it's like with the Clyborne in- endorsement, uh, you know, oh, the Democrats are unsure, so unsure, so unsure. Uh, the black people fixed it again, mm-hmm. right? Like, you know, like uh, the turn we need turn out amongst African-Americans. I, I, I've actually thought like Biden's, it's a little paternalist. He's like, mm-hmm. you know, South Carolina's my, he was right, but South Carolina's my place. South Carolina's my place. Like you don't own that vote. You yes. know what I mean? Like, yeah. and, and so two parties really competing for Latino voters, for African-American voters and seeing those generate would be awesome. It just feels so false with Donald Trump. Like, you know, what the 2012 reach outs, um, there was at least on paper an attempt to do some of the listening, Mm -hmm. some of the altering of policy, you know, revisit some of the criminal justice policy, maybe the voter suppression policy there that that seemed more genuine. Mm -hmm. Um, This just seems like a show more than it is genuine in that way. But in the abstract, two parties, maybe more, but uh, that's not happening in the states. Two parties really competing for voters would be superb. 
I think it's going to be, I mean, I know it's going to be difficult for a lot of people who just, you know, can't see past um, the giant racism that, that Trump represents. Don't send me letters. It's evident everywhere. Um, so I like to use an example of the guy that Trump pointed out during his campaign, mm -hmm. Gregory Cheadle. So we're at a big, he's at a big, big rally. There's like one or two black people in the audience. He sees one. He calls the guy, my African-American. Yep. You speak about paternal. Yep. And it turned out to be this guy named Gregory Cheadle, who has a lifelong Republican, has been a lifelong conservative. This, these are his values. And he wanted to support the party. Um, and Trump was a candidate. And then after having experienced uh, President Trump as a president, said this guy is all about white supremacy. Now, I didn't say that. That's Gregory Cheadle, lifelong black African-American conservative Republican. So much, he's so much upset about it. He withdrew from the party and became independent. Mm -hmm. He says, I hope to, you know, return when the, when the policies that I believe in mm -hmm. are, you know, back in place. But this guy is not about it. Right. It, to me, that's pretty... And that's exactly it. It's yeah. him pointing to these one examples or case that he really knows very, very little about. And, and I think holding it up to convince his white supporters that oh, I'm really not that racist as I'm, as I'm pretty much. Or I can do the racist policy, yes. but look, I've got the uh, a picture with this individual, yeah. or I've got a couple African-Americans behind me at, at, at these rallies and stuff like that. Yeah, it, It's like cover to do the policy. Yeah. Exactly. Kanye is sitting at my desk being right. crazy. <laughs> you know? So, right. With um, the hat. Yeah. I think one of the most telling uh, pictures, though, of Super Tuesday was the... Um, the black man who waited in line yeah. for yes. was it seven, seven hours. hours? The last voter uh, in Texas, where they have they we know that they have shut down uh, 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 polling stations right. in, in Texas in in communities of color. Aaron's done uh, some work on this and has has pointed out the the relationship between uh, voter suppression and uh, uh, voter turnout among communities of color. You know that that image isn't going away any soon. That That is going to resonate far more around the country than these one-off attempts by President Trump to increase his black support. You better believe it. That's going to... Yeah. Suburban <laughs> voters, white suburban voters feel better voting for Trump if they're the visual images there. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. And I'm here with three of the mass politics profs, Aaron O'Brien, Rob DeLeo, and Peter Ubitaccio. We're talking about Super Tuesday, other current political news, local politics, all of it, and President Trump's uh, re-election attempt. All right. So I was interested in this WBUR poll, which indicated that Democrats like um, Governor Baker much better than Republicans, and that um, Republicans, in fact, were moving more toward Trump. There had always been a kind of, I guess, the more of Republicans in the state did not seem to be Trump supporters, you know, full-on Trump supporters, but now that seems to have been made clear. Mm -hmm. Are you all surprised by that movement? Well, the G mass GOP has really, you know, had been bakers and the mass GOP has become, for lack of a better, a lot more Trumpy. Uh, Jennifer Nasser, who used to be the um, GOP chair in Massachusetts, Massachusetts from 2009 to 2011, came to my class last week mm -hmm. um, at Women in Politics. She ran for city council and she talked about the way in which Democratic voters gave her a lot of heat because she's a Republican, but the way in which the Republic, the Massachusetts Republican Party asked 
as the former chair, as the one who was in when Scott Brown won the Senate right. seat, the way in which she was taking heat from them for being a, a Weld Republican, a Baker Republican, and not she, you know, she's not the party of Trump. She's very critical there. And to see the Massachusetts GOP making that shift it, it is surprising. It, it is, you know, but it, it, there's a long history here of very conservative Republicans who in Massachusetts have very little relative political power because there aren't enough of them. Where they have a lot of political power are in state committee races and local mm. Republican parties, you know, town committees. And and they use it. They show mm -hmm. up. They show up in, in numbers that are disproportionate to their, their numbers in the population. And they torment uh, Republican <laughs> governors. And it's this has been going on for decades. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think the, the fact that Trump is president changes the the nature of it. But it certainly is not new. There's always been a division between old style Frank Sargent kind of Republicans that manifests itself in people like Bill Weld and Paul Cellucci and Charlie Baker um, and the more conservative Republican Party that has bastions of power in, in the South and, and Western part of the United States. So it, it, it's always, I think, somewhat humorous when you look and say the most most successful Republicans in Massachusetts are Republicans like Charlie Baker mm. and Karen Polito and, and Scott Brown. And yet the, the Republican base wants more people like Donald Trump. Uh, they'll win about 30% of the vote in any given election. That's they, they have that. It's just getting from 30 to 51 proves almost always impossible for them. But they're not going to give up the fight. And so they're going to be a thorn in Charlie Baker's side. But to be a successful Republican governor in Massachusetts, you have to work with Democrats in the legislature. And once you make the decision to do that, you're going to offend all of those Republicans <laughs> and those town committees and, and state committee. And uh, there's, there's no two ways about it. It's very rare that you can do both. Well, what's interesting to me, Rob, is that across the country leading up to the going into the, the, the 2020 uh, reelection campaign, President Trump, I think we may have even discussed this, pretty much essentially wiped out uh, any other potential um, uh, opponent because he took control of all the state parties. So it's really, you, if you, in many places, if you are a Republican, you have to be a Trump Republican because that's what exists, right? That's exactly right. <laughs> I, I don't think we should necessarily be surprised to see Republican support in the state coalescing around Donald Trump because this has happened nationwide. And to go back to signaling, they saw Republicans in Washington doing this during the impeachment trial. So I think for a lot of Republicans in the state, this is the path they've chosen, for lack of a better term, and they're going to stick with it. And to Peter's point, I, I think, you know, a lot of the press on on Charlie Baker, especially in this era of extremely polarized politics, um, focuses on his ability to work with a Democratic legislature. And so at this time where Republicans are sort of looking for a reason to rally around Trump, I think they sort of resent the fact mm. that they have this governor in their own state mm. who is advancing an agenda with Democrats in the Massachusetts House and Senate that they see as sort of ant antithetical to the things that, that Donald Trump. Well, I guess in. that makes sense. All right. Well, I, <laughs> I, I'm interested in a, a, a race that's coming in New York um, just because it's— um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who is being, who has an opponent now, and she's a former CNN um, 
a correspondent. Her name is Michelle Caruso. She's got three names, too. Cabrera. Uh, Cabrera, thank you. Um, and she... She'll uh, be MCC. Right, exactly, <laughs> as, as opposed to AOC. Yeah. So she has positioned herself, it seems, early on. We don't know. She hasn't said a lot yet um, because this is this thing hasn't taken off, uh, at least gotten that much attention. Um, as a Democrat, she's running for as a Democrat, but a much more conservative one than AOC. And so I guess we were, should have expected that AOC was going to draw somebody to her for this. But what do you think about this race? And, well, it's not hard to be a more conservative Democrat than AOC. Well, that's a good I mean, point. She's, Excellent point. She's pretty far off <laughs> on the left. Point. You know, I think, um, look, I, I, I tend to be very old-fashioned in these things. You know, I, I, I worry a little bit about first-term uh, members of Congress who have taken it upon themselves to uh, want to change an entire political party from coast to coast and refashion it in their image. I don't think that's possible. I don't think it's it's smart politics. Um, I don't have a handle on how well uh, she is um, perceived in her constituency, because ultimately, if you if you decide to go on a national crusade, uh, your your uh, congressional district voters will allow you to do that if they also believe that you're attending to local affairs. And if she's doing that again, as I said, I just don't have a handle on that then I think she'll probably turn back uh, this challenge. She's going to have no problem, obviously, with either name recognition or raising the money mm-hmm. necessary to turn it back. And the more high profile you are, the more likely you are to have a candidate, whether they're serious or not remains mm-hmm. to be seen. But, you know, I, there there are still some things that I think are important in American politics and that, you know, freshman member of Congress who is building a team at the local level can probably withstand that kind of challenge. Yeah, and she's, she, you know, she's so closely tied her own political stakes to oh, the Bernie. Sanders. Yeah. Yes. Uh, yes. So it, yeah. I think what, what will be interesting is if you had asked me before Super Tuesday, how do I see this playing out when mm-hmm. Bernie was really well positioned to make this push to reclaim a mm-hmm. real progressive wing in the party and maybe get the nomination, I'd say I think she's in really great shape. But it's going to be fascinating to see how it, as his fortunes turn, um, is that going to affect her back in the district? And what is that going to sort of mean for these progressive uh, views that she's about? Yeah, I'm really interested in what happens to all the squad members. I think uh, Ayanna Presley has been incredibly smart here in Massachusetts. There's no sense that she strayed from Massachusetts. That's Indeed, right her public, all her public work is around, not all, but I mean her mm-hmm. like electoral work is around Elizabeth Warren, who is one by 25 points and is the home hometown girl, mm-hmm. right? You know, the, the results obviously were challenging there. But I was watching a rally and um, Congressman Omar was there, uh, a Congresswoman Omar was there. And I I just thought, are you getting so, you got elected and it was a big deal, but are you getting out over your skis? Mm-hmm. So much so that uh, uh, some of those voters who went for you and say, yeah, you, you've, you've almost circled too far for me. Mm-hmm. Are you getting too, you can lead a constituency, but you can also, um, part of your job is to listen and represent them mm-hmm. as opposed to like preach to them. Mm-hmm. And uh, unfairly, uh, all AOC, Omar, uh, have such um, targets on them, electoral targets. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm very interested to see uh, what happens there because two years in office isn't much. This is when there's a lot of reason it's better to be a senator. Yeah. <laughs> this is one of them because you can work on that. But um, people love the squad energy because it's sort of uh, 
uh, we're not going to play by the old rules. But to Peter's point, uh, some of those rules are there for a reason if you want to be reelected. I think that's I think that's right. Now, my assessment based on a little bit is that AOC, Ayana and Rashida Tlaib have been pretty local focused as well as Mm -hmm. national focused. I'm not sure about Congressman Omar. I don't know. Um, But, you know, just from what I read about other initiatives that are very much home based. If I had to bet, I would say Tlaib and Omar of the four are in a lot more trouble Mm -hmm. or not trouble, more vulnerable Mm -hmm. than um, uh, AOC and Ayanna. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing we'll have to see as well, right, is is once the dust settles on this primary election and we go to the convention, where are progressives going to fit into this party? Is there going to be um, everyone's going to return home and get behind Joe Biden and we're going to move past some of the friction that developed here? Or is there still going to be these fissures within the party? And I think if those linger into... um, her race, I think then you could see it have a real impact. But if she's willing to sort of come back to the party and say, I'm here to be an advocate for Joe Biden as well, then well, it may actually, look a lot different. What you said, Rob DeLeo of Bentley, uh, leads me to my last speculative point, which I know you all hate because you're data people. <laughs> we but, hate it uh, and then we do it some. <laughs> or at least I do. Yeah. I speak for myself. Yeah. Vice presidential mm. possibilities. Oh. <laughs> um, because I believe that in order to sort of deal with what you just mentioned, Rob, that pick has got to sort of bring home everybody. That's a lot of weight. Oh, Stacy. Okay, some people are saying <laughs> Stacey Abrams. But a lot of people are still talking about uh, Kamala. But I don't know who else would say you. It's possible, but I think if we look historically, right, it's pretty rare for an unsuccessful rival to then become someone's VP pick. Um, it's happened, of uh, of course. Yes. It has been four or five times since the 1960s. So there's um, the data coming uh, in. Yeah. And Joe Biden was one of them. John Edwards is another name that... Uh, Comes we try to, mind, to forget. But, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, but I think Stacey Abrams is a, is an obvious uh, pick. I, I've also heard Joe Biden um, float Maggie Hassan's name, Sally oh, Yates as well. Oh, okay. Oh, a couple names, All so. right, Peter. So, you know, I, I, I think that... Uh, uh, Democrats are clearly a little risk averse. Not all of them, mm-hmm. but that I think that manifested itself on Super Tuesday. It it would be a surprise to me if if Joe Biden or or Bernie Sanders, um, I have a feeling it will be Joe Biden, but uh, were to choose someone who has not already been introduced to a national audience and has been vetted as a result, which makes me wonder if if Abrams is the is the right choice for him in a, in an administration focusing on things like voter suppression, she would be the obvious uh, person. But um, as a vice presidential candidate, uh, it, it, I think you know th- that risk averse quality. You know, why did Obama choose uh, Biden, for mm. example? Did you mm. really want to? worry about what you don't know and how that might come out. And we've seen plenty of instances of that with vice presidential candidates in the past. And so there are there are a number of people, uh, former rivals, um, current office holders, 
uh, that Biden can choose. But I, you know, I, I was um, since clearly age is not a factor anymore, and all of you know our pre- our mm-hmm. next president is going to be um, in their what their late seventies. Uh-huh. Why not someone like Eleanor Holmes Norton? Oh, that won't happen. No, uh, no. but uh, mm-hmm. you know, they, he. Need... I don't think she has a big, big enough national presence. Even uh, if no, following your it, no, that's probably thought. true. But mm-hmm. I'm not, I'm not so even so sure if the national presence mm-hmm. is necessary. So long, so much as someone who's been, who's been vetted. Yes, and I think that um, uh, that that's an extreme example, uh, mostly because she's she's even older than the vice than the presidential candidates. Oh, okay. um, <laughs> but you know, there are really good, qualified, competent people out there. And I think Biden knows enough about the vice presidency, obviously, to know that he, he really needs to have someone who's going to be a partner in, in governing because it's a disaster if, it, if, it, if, if the person you get is not a partner and uh, who you can trust. Uh, they're the, the only other constitutional officer, the only person you can't fire mm. when you're president. And so you really need to be able mm-hmm. to know that they, they have the, you have that person's confidence, which is why I don't think someone like Elizabeth Warren would be well-suited you know, I think well, I she think, wouldn't do that. No, I don't think no. she would do that. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't think it's the right place for her because I think mm-hmm. she'd have a much better yeah. opportunity to advance her policy agenda from outside the White House than than in Biden. Uh, if it's him, he's going to need someone who can help, you know, bring progressives back into the tent, but also help him govern. OK, Aaron, I think he also going to have somebody who has a big presence on the campaign trail. Big pre- A hundred percent. I was just going to say, uh, we, Peter and I now have a bet. Um, uh, you drink an old fashioned, right? Isn't that your I uh, have been known to enjoy yes. those. Well, yeah. you're going to be buying me my drink of choice because it is going to be uh, Stacey Abrams. And I'm really if she wants it and she has signaled that yep. she will listen. Mm-hmm. I, and I am assuming Joe Biden. Please don't be burning people. I've heard from you. Please don't send any. Right. Um, but I think Stacey Abrams, A, she's younger mm-hmm. and um, uh, uh, the people are not wildly excited about two 70-year-old white guys. Mm-hmm. Um, we've been talking a lot about the need to bring the party together for Democrats. That can't happen. Uh, it's not going to happen. So the vice presidential pick is someone who's just going to make it a little better. Mm-hmm. Stacey Abrams isn't in office right now. She helps for some of those progressives uh, and Democrats or her just disappointed by the demographics of the final choices there. She um, might open up the South. You know, obviously we saw, uh, you know, uh, uh, Biden do extraordinarily well. Um, (laughs) She could open up Georgia. So I I really think it's going to be someone like that that is uh, uh, conservative in some ways, but excites the base and progressives in others. All right. So I have you all on tape. We'll be revisiting this. Thank you all for joining me. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks a bunch. <laughs> Aaron O'Brien is an associate professor of political science at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Rob DeLeo is an associate professor of public policy at Bentley University. And Peter Ubertaccio is the founding dean of the Thomas and Donna May School of Arts and Sciences and an associate professor of political science at Stonehill College. You can read more of their analysis on their blog, masspoliticsprofs.org. That's it for this week's show. We're on the web at WGBH.org, News Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, and available for download wherever you get your podcasts. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of WGBH, engineered by Dave Goodman and produced by Francisca Monahan. This is Francisca's last show. I'm going to miss her terribly. She's off to a great new opportunity. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. See you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening.